Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musicians. Hey, welcome to Score, the podcast. It's great to have everyone back. It's the holiday season, we're guys. Here. We got the band back together. Wow. We were just mentioning this off camera. Maestro, this Bradley Cooper movie, we talked about in 2018. What is it? Six years ago? <laughs> On it's the very the second episode of uh, Score the Podcast, and we were talking at that point. Spielberg had just taken over this project from Martin Scorsese because we were like, "How cool is it to have a composer biopic?" And uh, then what happened following that, I think A Star is Born came out. Spielberg really liked Bradley Cooper as a result of how well that movie turned out. Handed the reins to Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper took it and ran with it. Um, I know just a few, well, I guess a year ago, Tar came out, which had a lot of similar themes. So you got to figure that Bradley Cooper was probably, oh my God, (laughs) this is so much of what, what is in my movie. Um, but Robert, I think you were the only of one of us three who has seen the movie so far. We're, we're eager to, but you got one of those VIP screeners. Uh, what are your thoughts? How, what was my, how was Maestro? I think it's epic. I really, I really didn't, I almost didn't move for the entire screening in that you just kind of, wow. First of all, you spend a lot of time thinking, Bradley Cooper really looks like Leonard Bernstein. He just, mm. and I'd read this incredible article recently about the makeup artist who Bradley Cooper insisted do the makeup or he wouldn't do the movie kind of thing. Cause there's one guy who did, he's a Japanese makeup artist who's legendary. He's won a lot of Oscars and, um, he did Gary Oldman's Churchill, Oh, okay. Is he the guy who did The Grinch initially for uh, Jim Carrey? Yeah. I know who you're talking about. And he, um, so, I mean, but that's beside the point because the movie on so many levels is absolutely brilliant story-wise, acting-wise, period-wise, but specific to this podcast. I kept wondering why uh, this is so dumb. So forgive me, podcast <laughs> listeners, forgive me for this stupidity. I kept wondering why there was no music by credit in anything I looked up because I'm listening to the movie and looking at it and kind of fumbling on IMDb for well, who put this music together. And I would think, I mean, this is so burns. Stein adjacent these score moments. Well, it's not West Side Story, but it's kind of similar. And then the last credit in the movie is all music by Leonard Bernstein. And I thought, oh, they really went out and found cues. And I don't know if they're necessarily cues or instrumental portions from scores or from. West Side Story, I thought I knew every note, which I kind of do, and there's a West Side Story quote in there, mm-hmm. but... But there's not a credited composer? It's music by Leonard Bernstein. I wonder I wonder if that was always the choice, or if they went out to people and people are like, hey, look, that's a lot of pressure. I Good don't, question. I don't we can that, ask you know? Steve Gazicki, who I know, who's worked on a couple pictures that I've worked on, who is credited as the music supervisor. And I also know, I actually, this is really weird, but, and kind of accidental. When I was a junior in college for my junior thesis, I decided to write about the score for on the waterfront by Mm -hmm. Leonard Bernstein. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know why I picked it or what I was thinking. And yet it was kind of became my career, but I think that some of the score moments in Maestro are score from on the waterfront. Uh, so, I mean, they're real genuine emotional score moments, but it turns out every single thing is his. And 
There are musical sequences in the movie, including the last one in the church. I'm not giving it away. Mm Mm-hmm. That are like the greatest music video I've ever seen of him conducting. Really? It's just oh, awesome. wonderful. I would like to say one more thing, and then we can either change the topic or you guys can <laughs> Well, I have guess, one more question for you, too, because you're it, our but, eyes and ears so far. Um, the one more thing is I kind of finished the movie and walked away thinking, huh. So for all of us that are out there seeing the Queen biopic and the Elton biopic and the Whitney Houston biopic and... You see all these fictional biopics about musicians. Some are good, some are okay, some are stinkers. But it's almost like Bradley Cooper walked in and said, hold my beer. Um, Really? Okay. I'm going to just, you want to make a musical biopic? May I crush it? It's just. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, and you, you talk a lot about, you know, people on screen playing instruments and being blatantly obvious that they've never touched that thing before and how hard it is to watch. But the dedication, I know he started conducting and practicing like four or five years ago, right when he knew he was going to start making this film and to go into that. I mean, we've talked with David Newman about the art of that and what, what that process actually does. It's not just someone waving a stick in the air. I mean, you're really controlling a, a room full of people and keeping everything in in tune and in sequence and everything timing wise, it's so critical. And to to start from scratch in a completely different language that you probably don't even know and master it and play someone who's like one of the greatest at all of all time of doing that is that's a lot of pressure on its own. And to nail it, I mean, how did that look, Robert? Oh, it's just those scenes, those conducting scenes are pretty central and pretty awesome, and emotional and you're absolutely right it'd be like you know robert here's what we're gonna do we're gonna make a movie about luge in the olympics and we need you to kind of in the next few years just become world class in luge because leonard bernstein's like one of the most famous conductors ever i mean he was going to be the next you know of course and and so Bradley Cooper doing that, he sits at the piano, um, and uh, the whole thing is a m- monstrous achievement. It also just is hard not to watch it and think, I dare, even though I'm not sure this is the case, but I dare any movie to rival this for an Oscar. This is like Oscar City. It's, really? Okay. Oh, it's so, well, see, the Academy is just going to is... eat it with a big spoon. It's just so <laughs> beautiful. That's my other question is, does, does a general audience, do you think your general audience will eat this up as much as someone who's either musically trained and knows anything about the characters or maybe, you know, people that are kind of the, the Hollywood tastemaker group? In the business, yeah. I, that's a good question. I'm kind of thinking as you're asking it. Um, first of all, you have Bradley Cooper, mm-hmm. so that's a draw. Um, you have Carrie Mulligan, is that mm-hmm. her name? Yep, yep. Um, fabulous. Uh, so you have some movie stars, and you have a famous guy. I don't know if it rivals... Whole movies in black and white? That always oh, no. feels... It's not. Okay, I was curious about that. You'll. I don't want to give it away, but okay. Um, sometimes just, that's a turnoff for people. But I just it, gave like it away. subtitles and black and white. Sometimes is a turnoff yeah. for general audience. So, um, no, it isn't. And so feels uh, very maybe, artsy. I don't know if the like trailer. That. I can't remember. Starts in black and white or something. But I mean, listen, we can talk about a lot of films today, but this one is. For anybody who's listening to score the podcast, I'd kind of say, you know, this is like your this is me your movie. potatoes. Yeah. It's so cool. It's yep. just cool to see what Bradley Cooper went from like hangover <sighs> funny guy, kind of funny comedy stud guy to like now he's oh you know, there's, upper there echelon are moments. Hollywood. You're in the movie. That's what I was saying. You kinda can't take your eyes off the screen. But you're in the movie, and there are occasional moments I had where he's doing a really emotional scene or a really intricate thing, and you think, directing this too. So it's like, did he say, 
Uh, okay, point the camera here. I'm going to walk over there. Okay, ready, go. And I'm going to mm-hmm. walk over and be that guy. Nah, I'm not sure I got the right take. I mean, does he ask? I know the film is shot by a great cinematographer named Maddie Labatique. Does he say to Maddie, what'd you think? Or does he say, I got to do that again? I mean, but so the idea of directing, co-writing the movie being Leonard, I mean, that's why he gets, I think, front-runner status on a lot of this, because even for the Academy, even if it's not the biggest box office billion-dollar franchise movie, uh, that's an achievement in filmmaking that's going to be hard to rival. Well, it is uh, out on Netflix um, today, December 20th. It is, uh, you can watch it right now. In the United I didn't States, realize I, I, I didn't, didn't either realize it was coming out that soon on Netflix. Um, yep, that's great. Yep. Um, so we'll switch gears because Robert, I know I was a little bit bummed that um, that we weren't able to join you for Jeff Zanelli. Uh, tell us a little bit about that conversation, which we're going to hear in just a couple seconds here. Yeah. Well, it's I mean, it's kind of easy to think about Leonard Bernstein. And I'm interchanging the second pronunciation, the second syllable, because it's always been. Thank you. It makes me feel better because I think I <laughs> is that I caught that I caught that yeah. earlier, and I was like, "Oh no, have I been saying it wrong?" This no, no, time? it's interchangeable. But you know, I sometimes get him confused with Leo the Lizard <laughs> in uh, the Justinelli, the other so, Netflix hit of the year. The other yeah. Netflix hit. By the way, I loved Leo. And Zanelli is a great guy and a great composer. And I thought, you know, I hope this isn't like eat your spinach. I I should watch it. I don't. I'm not gonna organically with all these pictures I want to see before the Academy Awards sit down and watch Leo on Netflix. But out of respect for Jeff, and we're gonna talk about it. I excuse me. I loved it. Wow. I loved it. <laughs> I really thought it was sweet and cute and well done and funny and well written. It sounds so stupid like I'm reviewing Maestro, but I particularly loved the music. And you'll see that Leo, which I didn't realize, is a musical in Hmm. that there are songs throughout and there's clearly an enormous talent. And if you're out there, Robert Smigel, call me because <laughs> anybody who writes songs like that, I, I don't know why you'd even call me. <laughs> You're well, doing you know, fine. that's the guy. He did uh, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog on Conan O'Brien yeah. and a bunch of SNL stuff. That guy's a comedy legend, so it's not surprising that's yep. fun. But Plus, it's another, another guest that I'm surprised it took this long to get on the show, Jeff Zanelli. It's exciting that uh, you were able to track him down. He's right? been in the, and one of the really cool things that I know, Robert, you're going to ask him about is uh, him kind of coming up through the early days of remote control and Hans and working with John Powell and all of like what an incredible career that Jeff has had just kind of starting in, you know, the hallways of, uh, of a kind of up and coming Hans Zimmer. (laughs) It's actually for all perspiring young composers, you will be thrilled to hear. It's as simple as, you know, I'm just going to like, write 60 notes and see who responds. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to give it away, but he gets one response and it turns out to be bingo. Oh, um, awesome. But he's a, like a sophomore at Berkeley college of music and wants a <clears throat> summer internship. And guess what? Karma happens. Well, I'm it's ready so to hear awesome. it. I don't know about you, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. Here it is coming up. Uh, Jeff Zanelli's conversation with Robert Kraft. Not only are you joining us on Score the Podcast, our fabulous new episode with Jeff Zanelli, but to answer one of his number one questions, will we edit out the controversial stuff? The answer is absolutely not. 
<laughs> That's what we live for. We want the dish. We want to spill the tea. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a new episode. It's been a perfect score of the podcast morning where nothing has worked. Uh, I worked. And yet, and yet <laughs> Jeff worked. And I worked we, this morning. <laughs> and we got this happening. Um, there are, if I told you, international internet issues, which is three eyes in a row. Um, I would be accurate about the way this episode started, but we're here, we're together. I couldn't be happier to be with the legendary Jeff Zanelli, who, for those of you who want just a little bit of the fabulous lineup, Jeff is a two-time Emmy-winning, fabulously lauded and awarded composer with big movies like Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, how'd I do? And uh, Maleficent, Mistress of Evil. But I think, Jeff, the biggest picture you've ever done and the most serious career achievement that I'd like to start with before we go through all of your incredible credits is you actually survived a week in Paris with Robert Kraft. <laughs> and I think that, you know, when they're, when they're reading your accomplishments and writing your New York Times obituary, I can see the first sentence was, among everything that Jeff Zanelli accomplished in his life, he went to Paris with Robert Kraft once to do a picture <laughs> and successfully completed the film. That's right. Can we actually just start with a sure. little memory of whatever you remember about that week? I remember the movie and I remember the assignment, but I yes. think we were overserved, or I was, at several different new and astonishing levels that week. So my memory is a little shaky. <laughs> um, the picture was Hitman, correct? Yes, it was. It was Hitman, and, and you called me... We met, what, three weeks before we got on an airplane to go to Paris, I think. I mean, no, we had met before, but this was the first time we ever worked together. Was, okay. was this one. You called and you said, I've got this movie. I've got this lack of time <laughs> to score it. And I hear you have some energy these days, which I do. And so I jumped in and I scored it. And then I think, if I remember right, we, we had already, you had already, uh, kind of locked in a schedule there in Paris with an orchestra. Like the the, the project was kind of on rails. <laughs> like it was like, oh, here's wow. what you're dropping into. You got a st strings, brass, choir, ready to go in three weeks. You better write something. And so <laughs> that's what I did. The actual trip to Paris, like every time I go internationally to record, is a complete blur because you 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 land it with an eight hour time difference. You go to a hotel wide awake for the eight hours you need to sleep before the session starts Perfect. you know you show up at the session having not slept and then you just it's a, kind of an adrenaline uh trial or an endurance trial or something we were there the studio was called guillaume tell remember that it was guillaume like, tell, right just yeah. outside a beautiful studio and um and as you said it was doubles or triples that whole week you know, to get the strings and the choir and the brass all done, kind of a tall yeah. order. So yeah. I'm, I am a little hazy on memories. I remember, uh, you know, I had half of an afternoon to maybe walk into a museum. Beyond that, oh, it, nice. was, it was work and eat. <laughs> you know? No, I went to the I went to the Louvre and I thought, here's what I'm going to do because I've never been there. I'm going to go to the Louvre and I'm going to not look at the Mona Lisa. I'm going to because that's a better story, right? And then. I walk through with John Finkley, you probably remember, he was our music editor. And I'm yep. walking through the Louvre and accidentally look down the hallway and see the Mona Lisa. So I, oh. I kind of ruined, ruined, ruined my Paris story experience by accidentally looking at the most famous painting in the world. <laughs> there, there you go, that's what I remember from Paris. <laughs> Isn't that the best way to see it? That's sort of perfect. <laughs> 
uh, you know, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna go to this party, and the one girl there, I know I'm not gonna see, and you bump into <laughs> by accident. Right into him, yeah. It's funny. You said, uh, you know, you did the work. You, we ate and slept. I remember that, but I also remember something else, and this is in my bad old days before oh I learned the downside of this kind of travel and work combo. <laughs> I was, for some reason, at that moment, uh, extremely interested in something that they had in Paris that they didn't have in Los Angeles. Right. And a lot of it I can blame Moulin Rouge, because <laughs> on Moulin Rouge, everybody was all excited about the fact that you could drink absinthe in yes. Paris. And, and it, I it was, do remember yeah. dragging all of us, you, Finkley, we went looking for absinthe. And there, was a, the rest, there was a restaurant whose name was absinthe and that was I a good clue it, yeah it was a clue we, you'd be able to get it there and we went in and they had just closed but we had with us one of the people on the on the team kind of a translator that was helping us in uh on the sessions came out with us that night and he talked them into letting us go and have a little little a little meal and a large the, <laughs> dessert the green fairy <laughs> the green, uh, that's, what right. they, that's what they call it Yes. Not the guy, the drink. The and drink. Um, <laughs> that's, see, I knew you'd remember something. Well, I think this is a great <laughs> chat. Put that a little a great chat, and uh, we should talk more often. I wanted to ask you a number of things, and we'll, we'll get to them. First of all, I am really loving Leo. Ah. I, I mean, you know, I often try, before we have these, to... Go through, and I've just gone through a number of your scores this week. I've had a little bit of a Greg Zanelli festival. And one of the things I wanted to do was, well, I don't watch a lot of you know, kids' movies. I'm not sure I'm going to. I love Leo. I think it's Leo so is super sweet. On It's on Netflix. It's an Adam Sandler picture with Robert Smeagol. Smeagol, yes. Yeah, he Smeagol. wrote it. I like to say Smeagol because that's yeah. the precious but, yes, exactly. um, he and score by you and mm -hmm. I, I think it's it deserves to be number one at netflix because it's it just is. really sweet and cute and musical yeah yeah I, i'm happy to hear you say that it was you know you never know when you're making these movies how they're gonna be received i knew it was good it definitely knew that but I've done a lot of good movies that didn't find an audience and I, I, I might dare say I've done, you know, not so good movies that did find an audience. Yeah. So, but this one, I, you know, was really, it's so easy to root for it. And you're right. We did well for, with Netflix, they got a huge, huge, it was 30, 34 million. I think people, wow. you know, I should say 34 million viewers. So they probably watched it with their kids. I mean, it's 70 yeah. million people and that's just in the right. first week. And it's really, and it's sticking around because it is good, you know, it, but boy, that it came to me in that very traditional way. You know, my agent calls, there's this open call basically for this movie, a bunch of people are pitching. You want to look at the storyboards, you want to write something because it was, you know, Rob Smigel and Rob Marionetti and Dave Wachtenheim were the three uh, co-directors yeah. and they, you know, they didn't, none of them really came into making the movie with an established relationship with a the composer. There was no, you know, a lot of movies are born with a composer. This one was not. So they went, let's have a look. And I wrote them a little demo and had a little meeting. And then it actually disappeared for six months, at least. Didn't hear anything. And I just thought, well, you know, it's the business. People move on. Then out of nowhere, not with the second meeting or anything, I get a call and it's like, you got, you got Leo. Going, you're going in on Monday to start. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> but it was incredible. Awesome. Yeah, and and I, who knows what happened? Well, because it's animation, right? So when I first saw it, it was storyboards, black and white drawings. They had shot the dialogue, but obviously nothing was animated. So I wrote him a demo to, you know, basically. Oh, you did. That's what I was going to ask. I did, yeah. And Emma, a demo that just was based on the storyboards. Yes, I, t I picked a couple of scenes in there. I think they had asked specifically to look at one scene, but I actually did a couple of them. Um, 
the one that I remember adding on was the one where Leo's crawling across the wall. It's a big musical moment. The I gag is, he, he's going to escape, right? He's, he's, yeah. he's kind of a Mission Impossible gag. He's going to escape. Mission Impossible, yep. Yeah, and every time the camera pulls back, you know, 10 minutes have gone by, and he's a slow lizard, so he's moving across <laughs> the screen like this. And the, the music plays counter to it, and I thought, well, this is oh, such a musical moment in the in the show. It's a place where music actually is the joke or, or you know mm-hmm. delivers the yep. joke so i figured i'll give him that and that was um in the end i i ended up hearing adam sandler reviewed all of these and that was what what did it really he's like well that that made him laugh so which and I mean, here's the thing here's, here's what i learned on this movie because rob smigel and adam sandler are look i'm relatively funny those guys are professionally funny correct <laughs> and so you learn that you know, you think you're funny, right, kid? It, it's a little bit like that. And so even just hearing, oh, you made Adam Sandler laugh, that's, that's kind of a big deal. It's a little feather in the cap. I'll, I'll take yeah. it. <laughs> and that's, so that's perfect. And by the way, yeah. um, people don't ever realize two things about what you said. Number one, the assumption is being funny with music is easy. No, it's not. It's, <laughs> it, thank you. It's really not. Because the default is if you go, and you can't do that. The other thing that I always found is people would assume that doing an animated film was easy. They'd say, can I, (laughs) also not. You know, you get this young composer calling and say, listen, do you have anything? I could even do animation. And you want to say, you know, animate." Animated films are wall-to-wall music. It's you really have to carry story. Right. And that's what I loved about what you yeah. did on Leo is it's funny. You picked one of the scenes that's the most funny and musical animated. It's just. Yeah. And did you get the songs prior to scoring? Because I really watched the way songs and score. Right. Okay. That's okay. Here's the thing, though. That's I'm glad you brought that up. Yes, the songs were already there in demo form, so they were in built into the storyboards because obviously the animators they need to animate to it. So typically, yep. on, well, you know, but on animation, the songs are done well in advance, and mm-hmm. the score comes later. But when I met with them the first time to talk just briefly about the movie before I wrote the demos, uh, what the I think the most important thing I said to them was I want. I don't want this movie to feel like here are the songs, here's the score. You know, they're like separate animals. Because all of my favorite animated movies, they don't do that. The Lion King doesn't do that. You know, or yeah. or musicals even. Willy Wonka, that's like my childhood favorite. It does not do that. You hear the score and the songs, they do this. You know, they mesh in certain times. And I just pitched that to them. I said, I don't, I don't. I don't want to not incorporate the songs into the score when it's appropriate. A little goes a long way too. It only happens four or five times in the movie, but it's enough to, to kind of connect these ideas. And in a way in a musical, the songs have to feel thematic. And then some composer comes in and goes, here's my six great, you know, themes. Well, we already have eight great themes. The next thing you know, yeah. you've got a movie with 14 themes and nothing's thematic because nothing ever happens twice. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, that was the thing. And, I, and I've and i always felt that way. And it's um, when whenever it's a musical, actually, whether or not it's animated doesn't matter. It's kind of an approach to, to a musical, I think, that, that works oh, best. Oh, I think it's so spot on. And the greatest yeah. ones, you feel the – it's all – works together as a right. piece and and you have to do that did they just little high technical shit did they give you the songs in the right key so you would know where you were yes. the demos or did you yes, have to they already were. afterwards okay no they, so they already was, were but, um, yeah this is i'm excited we can swear in this so that's good you broke yes, the ice i appreciate we can <laughs> Um, but um, I was thinking something you said about scoring animation not being easy. And one of the things that gets overlooked with, with people that haven't worked in animation yet is what's happening there. It, like there's never a bad performance in animation because you oh, get to perfect, change it and perfect. change it and change it, you know, tweak, before tweak you hit to death, yep. everything. So the timing is perfect. 
the expressions yep. are, you know, and if they're not, it's a mistake of filmmaking. It's not, you know, it's not like, oh, we had to cut around, so, you know, an, an actor or the table fell right. or whatever. You know what I mean? Like that never happens. So everything, Get even the sound. take from that <laughs> exactly. animated character. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and what, so they sh- the dialogue, you get it dialed in, they animate to it, you know, it's so, it, it makes, so it nice. changes how you write music, you know. You mentioned, it's, um, it's, go ahead, you said it changes how you write music, meaning. Yeah, well, because it, because have, everything is precise, you know, and look, the, the approach is always like, okay, where do we make this feel like a live action? When are we going to do the Carl Stalling thing, which does happen a couple of times if you're doing slapstick or, you know, but, um, but then you go like in a movie, the editors are always whittling a frame here, tweaking these little things. I'm talking about live action. Now things kind of, they get amorphous and they shift around again to make it feel organic. Something that ultimately isn't actually every time you cut, it's not organic. So, when you're working in live action, the piece of music you write, it needs to have kind of an ebb and flow to it to be able to kind of shuck and jive around all of those little uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, organic imperfections, let's call them, you know, or perfections, depending on how you look at it. In an animated film, it's animated to out of being sterile. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it's sort of the opposite, whereas like a, in live action, everything is sort of raw and you got to tighten it up animated yep. film the work is how do you make it frame specific top oh, to yeah. bottom yes you mentioned another film uh, as an inspiration or an example and it's was an interesting reference because in reading about i mean i learned a lot about your incredible journey here one is did you start at remote control on Lion King, which you mentioned a moment yeah. ago as an example of. Um, yeah. And it was, I mean, nice. I, I probably am giving away the farm here, but you came out to California after Berkeley, came back to California. Well, kind of. I, actually, what happened was, I. so this is 1994. I didn't graduate from Berkeley until 1996. So here's actually the story. I grew up in Orange County, which is like, yeah, I know exactly. (laughs) It's uh, and not the part that they make TV shows about it in the landlocked (laughs) part with graffiti on the street corners. And we had a metal detector in the high school. Sublime. (laughs) So, you know, that's, but what that meant was I would go to Berkeley and I would come back home in the summer and Can be we just only- pause on that. How did Berkeley you're in high school in yeah. Orange County. Berkeley oh. is exactly the other corner of the country. <laughs> yeah. Um, you knew that you wanted to go to Berkeley desperately or it was actually or applied. both. Yeah, okay. no, it was the only place I applied. Um, but uh, I mean, I, I kind of looked around, but it was the only place I sent in an application because at the time I felt, I think this is still true, actually, but Berkeley is, you know, they were, they were the school that was looking forward. Right. And I think not all of them are. So, and uh, it's not a dig or anything. I'm just saying like, I I didn't imagine myself going into like academia. I wasn't going to necessarily be a concert composer or something like that. I wanted to work on films. I already knew that. And um, I remember reading the course catalog actually for Berkeley and being like, wait, this, this is school. Like you can, cause I grew up in the public schools in Westminster where it was like, you know, there, there, there was no magnet kind of program, any of that stuff that, you know, my, my kid is the beneficiary of, I didn't really have that in my, you know, if you wanted to music, I had to find a, start a band or, you know, find yeah. a private teacher or something, which yeah. I did both of those things. But then when I, so yeah, I went off to Berkeley and I knew, I knew already it was going to go into the film scoring and the engineering program. Those were the two things that interested me. That's what I did yeah. there. And then while I was there, I also thought, I mean, in retrospect, it sounds like I had some great master plan, but I didn't. What I thought was, I don't know a professional musician. I've never met one. I don't know what a studio looks like. I've never been in one. I better get on this, right? And so while I was at Berkeley, I did. Um, you, I'm, I sent out a bunch of resumes to everyone in L.A., every studio in L.A. that had anything to do with film music going you know, can I please come hang out? I mean, I want to be your intern. I want to do, I want to volunteer. Would it be a summer internship yes. kind of thing? 
Exactly. Right. And that would have been after my second, my sophomore year of Berkeley. So this is 1994. And I, I always tell the story and go, I sent out 50, 60 resumes and I got one phone call back. And, th and that was like the first lesson about the music industry. <laughs> it's like, you can tell 60 people will work for free and 59 of them say, nah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, yeah. that's like kind of like, and by the way, I don't mean to make it sound like that's all I did. I also had a job that summer because <laughs> I had to earn some money, but it was like, I, how am I going to get a foot in the door? And, um, not Hans, but Hans was receptionist, but <laughs> at the studio, when he was writing the score for the Lion King said, why don't you come down and see if you're a good fit? You know, and it was amazing. So I had to talk my way into, into, into that position too. But here's the thing. They let me in and then I just didn't leave. I mean, you know, okay, you'll be here from 10 to two. And I'd be like, sure. And then 8.30 PM would roll around and I'd be like, Love oh, that. I guess I'll head home, you know, cause like Alan Meyerson, for instance, was a early sort of take you under your wing kind of guy. He's a brilliant mix engineer that was working Amazing. there. And he would go, yeah, yeah. Come in, just you sit in the back, you know, cause I wasn't a nuisance. And, um, I, just, I learned through osmosis a little bit. I learned a lot about orchestration watching Alan Meyerson mix, you know, because every once in a while he solos the woodwind track, you know what I mean? And you go oh, like, that's a fantastic yeah. way to learn. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then as I got, so that was just the first summer I came back in the winter, but it wasn't even like an official internship. I just showed up and like, Oh, you need food. I'll go get it. And then in exchange for that, I'm going to sneak in the back. Alan's mixing again or whatever. And, you know, and, and then eventually, like, I, I'm trying to remember when it was. Oh, yeah. Uh, summer of, I guess it was 90, right before my final uh, year at Berkeley. There was a record label there and they were doing a, a Goldfinger was the name of the band. Uh, and they were like, kind of like, you know, like a pop punk sky influenced yep. in that kind of zone. And I, that was the first money I ever made in music. They, they asked me if I'd be the tape op. And so like Jay Rifkin, he was producing the album. <laughs> he had the record label over his partners with Hans at the time. And Slam Andrews was the engineer on that record. And I was running the tape machine. And um, really, it was more like, if you want to hang out, make yourself useful. It wasn't really a job. And I do yeah. remember at the very end of that summer, you know, the last day, I'm getting on the plane tomorrow, see you all in the winter or whatever. And, um, and they handed me a check for 500 bucks. And I, and it was like a gold mine to me because like you know that was the first money I ever made in in music was wow. hitting record, hitting stop. I think there's also <laughs> the way this is told, it wouldn't have been surprising because you're doing tape op, you're sitting behind yeah. Alan Myerson. If you'd said, "Wow, I really love the kind of," and Slam is there, the mixing yeah. aspect, or I'm going to be a a film recordist. Um, what was I always love? None of this is what I thought I'd ask you, but it's way too, in, it's <laughs> hey, way too interesting. It's way too <laughs> interesting for me. Um, there's always a moment, and I think remote. You mentioned Jay Rifkin. It wasn't called remote then. It was called Media Ventures. Media Ventures. Thank yeah, you. Media yeah, I still have the double back. Oh, that's you're lucky. <laughs> um, I, we're unlucky. I um, I always love the story. I maybe you have one of where the intern gets yeah. that moment where the big cheese in the room, Hans Zimmer, Harry Gregson Williams, John Powell, turns around and says, "You know what, man? I gotta go home and be with my kids tonight. Can you write the yeah. moment where the ship collides with the sure. dock and just take a shot at it, and we'll look at it in the morning?" Yeah. Was there a moment like that for you? There was, there was, but it was quite a bit deep. Well, let me try to put it on the timeline. It was, a, that would have probably been a, at least a couple years in the future. So, so here's how really what happened. I did that record, went to thing, came back in the winter. Hello, everybody. Went back, finished my school, you know, little school boy comes back to LA and then showed up with like, okay, and now I'm in the workforce you know, which is the most terrifying time and for everyone. And what I did at the time, <laughs> because there was not a job ready. It's not like I walked into something at remote. They didn't have something. I worked at a place called Enterprise, which was like, I was a runner there. Great studio. No, well, yeah. Totally unrelated to film music. They were doing a lot of hip hop records. I um, remember. The place called The Bomb Shelter, which did hip hop demos. I was running, I was, a, I was an engineer. 
Actually, it was a Berkeley grad named Henri Yonet who ran that. I don't know what he's doing now, but that he had a studio there in mm. Santa Monica. And um, there was a third job. Oh, yes. Uh, at um, Roundabout, which was at the time a sound design place, but now they have dub stages and everything. In fact, we dubbed mm -hmm. um, we dubbed Leo at, at a Roundabout uh, dub stage. Which I thought it was super weird. Completely. Right. And what I did for them was I cataloged, edited and cataloged the sound effects for the movie Kingpin, which was a comedy about a, a bowling. Farrelly bro yes. And he has like a rubber hand. So they had like a catalog. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say tens of thousands of rubber squeaking noises that all had to be kind of named and doesn't everyone. Up. Yeah. In case you need them again. Right. So this is a right. long, high pitched squeak. This is a wet, squishy squeak. This is, a, you know, and they would all go into this. And that was what my, those are my early, early jobs. Those are making ends meet while I was still going and hanging out at Hans's place. Then the big sort of move for me was John Powell moved in to score the movie Face Off. And he did mm. not have an assistant and needed one mm. you know, that week. And he interviewed a bunch of people, like just like just like everything. You know, you're kind of in competition with a bunch of people. And for whatever reason, he said, okay, you're, you're, you're the guy. And... Um, I mean, I got plenty of stories about that, but the moment that you're talking about when it was writing was on the movie. Well, let's see. I did a couple times. I did like a source cue on Face Off for like a little something coming off a laptop, something totally unrelated to the score. Yeah, it's a start. <laughs> it a start. And then I did some sound design -y stuff for a movie he did called Endurance. But then when he was doing Ants, I think was the third movie he did when I was his assistant. There was a, it was again a source cue, but they wanted it to be thematic to a, a melody that I believe that was a co-written between he and Harry. Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to misattribute it, but in any case, yep. there was like kind of a line dance in the bar and, you know, and, and I, I thought, okay, I'll, sure. And I worked on it overnight because that was the only time. John had one studio and in fact, it was one room. So I sat in the room at a desk three feet away from him while he would write, which was a, another great, like, learn by osmosis thing. While I was emailing and collecting videos or whatever my actual job was, I was there for that. But it meant if there was music to be written, I had to wait till he went home. <laughs> and, and he works long and hard days, so he'd go 14, 16 hours. He'd go home. I'd write, maybe sleep on the couch a little bit, check if we needed anything, sleep on the couch a little longer. <laughs> you know, like, it was kind of a um i don't know I, I try not to speak about it too romantically but personally I, it's very romantic time for me other people I, I think hear I these think stories and hear it differently. And i loved it listen yeah. you speak about it romantically because it was romantic yeah, it was. in the way that it was a kind of happy lustrous creative moment which is yeah. what we all i mean it could have been exactly the opposite and you just reminded me of something yeah when I had to get a composer for Hitman in three weeks, and yeah. I don't know why, <laughs> I think we, for some reason, it's like it was a, it was a French film, and we yes. inherited maybe the film at Fox, and it was sort of unfinished, but needs to come out soon. Craft, <laughs> go find a composer, and they want a very specific score. Yes, they do. Type. And the score type they could reference was Born Supremacy. I just remembered this. And That's I called John Powell and said, this is crazy. I know you're in the middle of whatever he was in the middle yeah. of. Yeah. And by the way, you're not, I just want to check, you're not about to mm, take three weeks off maybe to rush <laughs> to France to write another score. And we went through it. I said, I need a Born Supremacy understanding composer yeah uh somebody who knows exactly what that reference is and it's not huh i've never really thought about doing something like that and he yeah. just said jeff zanelli oh interesting stop. i that's so interesting i, I just I, remember never knew that John, that's amazing i just remembered that pal uh, the perfect i, I never knew that you, you've kind of reminded me yeah. when you said you work with pal and uh had been in the room with him that it was a born supremacy rim shot Sure. For Hitman. And I yeah. don't remember enough to know how close we came or if there was a real born supremacy or that was just the hot movie at the time and they all said we want it to be like that. 
Yeah, I, um, I think it's more. I think it's more B. It was definitely the hot movie. Uh, that's that's very fascinating to me. I never knew that there was a John Powell uh, involvement at all in it. Other yeah. than I, I knew that you knew I had worked for John, but I didn't know you spoke with him. That's quite cool. Oh yeah, I'll and, send, him, um, send him a thank you today. <laughs> yes, and uh, a five dollar bill usually goes a long way in the envelope. Just to say, maybe no, you I, buy, I, your, I buy yourself something nice. Um, <laughs> I do remember very little about Hitman except for the anxiety of the producer desperately wanted a song by the band. This is so random. Justice, a French. Okay. Um, I love that band, actually. And we put a song in a, I think we took a cue of yours and moved it aside so that okay. we could put in a very aggressive Justice track over a kind of cocaine fuel yes. gun gunfight in the back room of a club. <laughs> kind of what the whole movie uh, was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're right. I think that's what the film was. It's a little different vibe, cocaine-fueled gunfights right. from something that I owe. It might be the first time I ever heard your name. Which Interesting. was on Odd Life of Timothy. Gunfight. Okay, yeah. Yes, sure. And I always wondered... First of all, that's about as far from born supremacy as you could get. And I remember thinking, and it's kind of ironic because it was sort of in the, much more in the territory of John Bryan. Okay. We ended up working with. Right. Subsequently. But I guess it's a kind of two-parter. But the the real question is when you're at remote control, which I guess you were, Mm. doing this really wonderful score by yourself. Right, 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 right. Do you have fantasies of, you know what? I'm out of here. And (laughs) as far as I can tell, that didn't occur or it did occur? Well, no, it's funny you say that. I I, I still have a room actually at remote. I'm I'm not sitting in it right now. I have a a couple studios now because I'm a grown-up. I mean, (laughs) that's what what we do. We expand. Um, But, but, it's interesting for you to say that because I've, I, I, boy, you're talking about the old days of media ventures and like that heyday when it was Hans and John Powell and Harry Gregson Williams. And you think about like what an incredible creative, just focal point that building was. And then you, of course you see Harry and John also moved out, built their own studios, built their own very different and both amazingly successful careers. So, you know, I just think there's a few, I think there's a few ways to do it. You can do it. Like you said, you can dust your hands and, and leave, or you can give everyone a hug and, you know, slip out. And, and, you know what I mean? And I guess that's kind of the the way I always felt. I mean, I talked to Hans all the time too. So it's like, you know, these are my friends. These are people that have helped me. And I have um, maybe from my Catholic upbringing, <laughs> a deep seated, uh, uh, you know, reverence to the people who've been kind to me in my life. And, and, uh, and it helps me to kind of feel like, I guess, a gratitude to all, to all of those people, even, and Harry, who I worked with only a little bit, but, you know, with John, I was his assistant for four intense years with Hans. I was his arranger and additional music guy for 10 years, maybe, you know, off and on in between, like in, I would do Hitman and then I go back and do a pirates movie with him. And then I'd go do ghost town and then, Pirates Five came along, or you know, so, so there was, yeah, there was there. I don't know. I think there's there, there's a lot rare. of ways to do it. Yeah, Actually, maybe. I think it's rare to have uh, keep loyalty. Um, yeah, keep the band together. Um, you also have the, in some ways, from the outside, it's like the privilege of collaborating with really sensational other yeah. composers, but it. Right. It also, as I kind of read through Hans, John Powell, Harry, John Bryan, Danny, uh, Philip Glass, you know, the number of people, it also points to a strength that clearly you have, which I'm curious about. Sure. You must be an unbelievable collaborator in the room. You must have this strength of huh, let me, let me work on that with you. I mean, a lot yeah. of composers 
as I said, I'm you know I'm a solo yeah. engine, and I need my uh, freedom here. Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure you've had that feeling. Oh sure, yeah, 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 yeah. You is collaboration something you sought, something that fell in your lap, something you enjoy, something it's, you it, hate? No, it's it's something I enjoy, but it's funny because. I definitely have those moments where I'm like, I don't want to co-write nothing, you know, but, but then, but then here's the thing is whenever I get in that mindset, David Kep calls me and says, I was thinking maybe Mark Ronson and you could write this war together. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we could, you know, like yeah. that sounds cool. So he, here's the thing when it comes to collaboration, well, there's, I have a lot to say about this actually, but Good. with another composer collaborating to me works best if you, if you're different, you know what I mean? So, like, here's the reality, and, and this gets overlooked a lot because of how closely I worked with Hans. We don't sound that much alike, you know? And so one of the kind of, um, I guess, little little quirks of that relationship is if I write something super interesting, fresh, and original on a Pirates movie that says music by Hans Zimmer, and this happens not just to me, it sort of gets absorbed into, like, the canon of Hans Zimmer's sound, right? Mm -hmm. But if you go and watch Cannibal Island and Pirates 2, that was a, that was, that's all me. In fact, when Hans heard it, he says, I don't know how you wrote that. That, that, that sounds, that does, that's so Jeff. That's what he said. And, um, and <laughs> Gore responded to it and loved it. And so the next thing you know, like, okay, we're, this is it. It's going to become thematic. Tia Dalma's theme, which became Calypso's music. I'm still thinking about Pirate successes um mm -hmm. which they sort of get encapsulated in the score for pirates and this is why i actually like the punchline of this joke is pirates five comes along and han says no he should do it and he did say that i was i watched him say that exact thing to mitchell lieb who was the head of music at disney mitchell said i'm going to whisper in your ear how much we'll pay you to score pirates five and he whispers in his ear and hans goes have him do it and it wasn't because the number was low by the way, because it was, I eventually came to learn how many zeros were taken off the, taken off the fee for it <laughs> by the time it got to me. It was, it was, uh, he just was like, no, there's really not an amount of money that makes that fair. This should be Jeff's movie. And that's, that's what I'm, this is why I say like Hans has that's been fabulous. very good. Isn't it amazing? Like, just think about that for a second that he would just go, you know, I, I don't want however many millions of dollars this is going to mean yeah. more to him he still cares about pirates <laughs> you know what i mean like he yeah. still loves these guys so let him have it let him have it he earned it is really the way he i think it looked at it so just collaborating out of curiosity did he walk into the room ever and say uh, i don't think so or that oh, do, you mean, do you mean during the writing process or like yes or did, no. did just like total bubble it's yours it basically okay so he said i think jeff should do it a few months later i get a copy of the script and we do have a meeting with at the time uh, it was Joachim Roning and espen who was there they were two directors so the two yeah. of them hans and i and mitchell sat down in a room and it was really just like hans going trust me you're gonna be fine you know kind of blessing it he godfathering mm -hmm. it right my yeah. If he was involved in any way at all, listening to that music as it was written, it was, I would be unaware of it. It would have been, you know, contraband emailed to him in the middle of the night. The next time he even had anything to do with it that I'm aware of was he happened to be dubbing another movie on the same lot as Pirates 5. And he couldn't resist like, oh, what did Jeff get up to? <laughs> you know, And he popped his head into the dub, said hello. And then I get an email from him. It was a day that I was not on the dub stage. So I get an email going, hey, your score sounds really beautiful. I heard it today on the dub stage. Great job. And that's it. And I thought, oh, <laughs> I kind of wish I knew you were going in there. <laughs> but it was, yeah. Compliment. It was very, yes, it was great. So, you know, look, I'm, he may have some influence I'm unaware of, but I think at that point it was like, you know, I think he'd be happier if Jerry Bruckheimer didn't have to call him up and go, you know, you need to get on Jeff about this. And I don't think that that happened. I think we, oh, we that's, got through <laughs> that's so funny. They but I mean, I see Jerry dialing the first six numbers and then going, okay, play me the next cue. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was sort of terrifying. But anyway, what I want to, um, yeah. before we 
rock into the future. I actually was in a conversation with a perspiring young composer <laughs> who, yes. when I mentioned this was coming up, he said, I love Jeff Zanelli. Oh, boy. And uh, then he said, he asked me to ask some questions in general of composers. Okay, okay. Boy, I like this. And uh, <laughs> he said he wants these questions to be more a part of the podcast, and he sent them to me. And I just thought, since you're the next podcast after this event, which was like a holiday party a few days ago, and I mentioned yes. this to a guy I just met. Here, it's just interesting. He said, I'd like to hear more focused topics on health in the composing world. More in-depth on how the big composers on your show deal with work-life balance. Oof. How about that? It was like a young composer who I was kind of uh, concerned. So <laughs> and I thought we'd wrap up by saying, um, he says, when do they feel they have to stop and set boundaries? Or Okay. Pretty so deep, right? It's so deep. We could do two hours on this. But it's, yep. it's funny. But you see, I, I, this is why when I talked to you about sleeping on the couch and working for John, I kind of qualified it. Because when that happened to me, I loved it. I love. I, I, I was like, they let me in the door. I don't, I don't have to go home. It, so I, I have this whole trick. But, but here's the other thing is I also realized I try not to do that to my own assistants. So what is that? What, you know, why has that changed? You know, it doesn't mean that they don't sometimes have to work insanely hard. Of course they do. And they're willing to, and that, you know, that that's what gets them the job. But I think all of us are trying to be a little more sensible about it because I think one thing that's starting to kind of dawn on composers, even Hans, I've heard talk about this is, you know, we can't expect everyone to be built the same way that we are, right? But here's here's a trick that I have, and I hope this is useful and doesn't just sound like bullshit. If going back to the thing about being a musician, and you you get together with your friends as a teenager, and you say, "Do you want to come over this Saturday and play music?" You don't say, do you want to come over this Saturday and work music with me? You get together with your friend. And by the way, I'm, I'm having tingly memories of working with Mark Ronson. It was so teenage. That's the best way to put it. He goes, let's hire in a bunch of instruments. Just make stuff. He play, I'll play the drums. You know, we're not drummers. Okay, you play the drums for a sec. I got the guitar. Let's see what happens. And it was so playful. It's just the only word, right? Mark Shaman is playful. Every time he talks, he's playful. You know, that's the goal. So as soon as you go, I don't know. Uh, yes, I get that it's work. And yes, I know that I sit at this desk and I write music sometimes for 16 hours. But I get to the end of that day not feeling... Uh, I mean, I like doing it, <laughs> you know? so it doesn't it doesn't feel like uh, some work life imbalance. It feels like I've combined this thing that I really love to do with this, you know, with work. And the, by the way, sending an email to whatever, blah blah blah, yeah, that's the work. Like updating oh, your cue right. sheet, editing, and that, you know what I mean. Like that's I'm not that into that, but I've got to get it done, so I do it. Writing music, just. I don't know, man. I, I, I'm not tired of it yet. I'm, I'm getting, I'm stepping into my fourth decade. If we look at the timeline and I might still enjoy every minute that I get to do that. In fact, the work is the stuff that happens in between. But I, I also fully understand. I, I actually hear this a lot from younger composers. The work-life balancing is very much on their mind because they hear people like me go, yeah, I worked 80 hours a week for six months on such and such. And they go, well, how? Or either they don't believe you or they think, you know, it's, it's not possible or something. I wonder if it's generational, that there's a misunderstanding of what the act. Nobody's saying, geez, I hope we have more composers arriving in Los Angeles today that we just yeah. don't have enough perspiring young composers. Right. That is part of it to me is you got to dig in. 
by the way, it's also on a schedule. It's not like no, you have you have these pesky things called release dates, and yeah, and there are no all these milestones in between that you can safely kind of ignore or punt down the line. Yeah, but right. there's still there's still later. a headmaster. That's the one that matters, you know. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. And I I don't know. I always came into it going well on. There's always a moment on a movie where somebody has to stay way past their bedtime to get that something done and sometimes that somebody's you and sometimes it's your assistant and sometimes it's the head of the studio and sometimes it's you know who knows and that's yeah. i guess that's part of what i what i like about it but to the to to your to your young friend's point you know i do things i do do things to keep me healthier mm-hmm. um one is i exercise often so, and that's, that was one of his questions and that's, uh, yes, I do. Um, and it's also head clearing and, and to be honest, even that can be combined with work because sometimes I print a cue and I put it in the headphones and I exercise, you know, so yeah. it's something that I do to keep my, you know, it's just a physical health. You know, I, yeah. I, I stopped drinking that helped, you know, the, like there's a lot of Same. things you can do. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's uh, there was always a, you know, kind of a release valve that a composer needed and it was be- about finding the healthy ones. And so getting on a bike is probably better than absinthe. <laughs> uh, you know what? I think, I think that's going to be the quote of the day. Um, but I think you also just kind of nailed the, first of all, sobriety is the key to clarity and productivity, sobriety and exercise for yeah. maybe both of us. Um, I think that, uh, being a composer, being an artist is athletic. I've always felt that. Yeah, I that, agree. You know, you listen, from if you're a touring musician and you waste yourself every night, you always find out mm, that has its limits. Yep. And <laughs> Once you're out of composer, your <laughs> I think the perfect button is, and I didn't even realize this until I rearranged myself in my chair. Yeah. See the, I, I'm wearing quite accidentally because it was a recent gift to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It says, eat, sleep, compose music. And that was from a young composer in Canada right. who uh, made these up because he feels that's his life. And yes. understandably, yeah. um, well, kind of want to add, eat, sleep, compose music, sleep some more. Yes. But, uh, yeah. I mean, I also power napping helps me a lot. I, but, but again, this is a this is a work habit that I have that I don't know anyone else does. If I'm working on a piece of music, I will sometimes loop it and just lay on that black couch and doze for however long I need. It's usually five minutes, maybe ten, and then so I come back and sit down. And I just sit there. What's going to happen if I just let myself dream this piece of music? You know, and it's not like. I don't do it every day. I don't do, you know, but it's something, it's a habit. It's actually a kind of habitual part of my workflow. Um, and also like I'm leaving, out, yeah, I'm leaving out an amazing did. kid too. And I love being around her. And so like, you know, it, it, that's, that's part of why it's important to have more than one studio. I can have one right near my house so that I can pick her up from school. Like, you know, and that love stuff that. has really been, that's life changing. And I think that's probably one of the biggest changes to how I'm, operate um i used to have a long commute now i only have the commute if i need to go into santa monica otherwise that hour or hour and a half is free to do whatever i want that's where i can get the time to exercise it's where i can play nintendo with my kid and go have a meal you know all that stuff so i, I that's i'm just, i guess what i'm saying is i'm here to say it's not impossible because <laughs> i think a lot of people view it and they, they say what is this going to look like in 15 years when i start you know, if I'm raising a family or something. And I think maybe accidentally, or maybe because I had some master plan that I cooked up, I got myself to a place where when I had a kid, I could do that. I could build another studio. I could, you know, like, I don't know that it was necessarily some plan, but it, but it worked. And so all of those like 80 hours sleeping on the sofa kind of weeks those those are in my past you know it doesn't mean i haven't i well on christopher robin i did have to do them again because it was that we had two weeks i had two weeks so similar thing it was a and two I love week that score with john bryan oh, yeah love it thank you i appreciate it but it was it was uh, intensely you know, it was intense work. 
you know. So right. um, it's almost also that was a season in your life, and this is another season. That's right. That's and right. I think you've just named my new favorite band. Zanelli and the Power Nappers. And the Power Nappers. (laughs) First of all, a power nap is the coolest thing in the world. I just love that. I do it sometimes. 20 minutes with my feet up can change the day. Jeff, I don't want to wear you out. I think that we covered huge turf and sort of scratched the surface on for our next one. Let's do another. I'm around tomorrow. We'll do another. Um, that's great. We got to get the internet working with (laughs) great, uh, there was such, you have no idea that two minutes before we recorded, there was the, should we call Jeff and say, we, the electronics have gotten in the way. Murphy's law is here. If your internet isn't working, I don't know if we can do this. I don't want to run the session. And yet like all of us in that moment, Okay, show me what to do. And you just kind of dug in, and because I usually have Carol, who works with me, oh, yeah. run the session and record and all that. And this time, Carol had an internet hiccup because Murphy lurks around Murphy. everything we do. Right, and indeed. I said, okay, we're going to do it. Jeff, thank you so much. Of course. Somehow the movie. Really appreciate it. <laughs> and uh, I really recommend that everyone see Jeff's latest and greatest, which is Leo. Because it's you. so good. Thank and you. so fun. Thank you. To be continued. Yes, and please, yes, please. And thank you for having me on here. I, I hope... Uh, my pleasure. I hope we I remain interesting. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I want that on my tombstone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, man. Of we'll course. Have a good rest of your day. Take care. Cheers. Bye.